If you like what you hear, come and visit me at youtube.com slash tiptoe the tank and see this content in all its glory. Something terrible was happening at Arklay Mountain. Reports of people going missing and killings taking place were reaching the Raccoon City Police Department. For years, the Chief of Police, Brian Irons, had assisted in keeping the Umbrella Corporation out of investigations and headlines. But by 1998, the headlines of Raccoon City were all about the grisly deaths. This city was always a bit of a hotbed when it came to illegal activities, but this was a whole new escalation. What could be behind it? Well, at this point, Umbrella founding member and father of the T-Virus, James Marcus, has been dead for nearly a decade, assassinated on the orders of Oswell E. Spencer, but his queen leech has been sucking down that sweet, sweet James Marcus juice in the sewer he was dumped into the entire time, absorbing his DNA, slowly copying him, building its own body, becoming a copy of James Marcus with all of his memories, intellect, and malice intact. The new James Marcus was intent on taking revenge on Umbrella and watching the world burn, so he began using leeches to cause leaks and T-virus infections at the Arkley Mansion lab. By June of 1998, infected dogs were being spotted in the Arklay Mountains. A 20-year-old woman was torn apart, which made it into the news. There were stories of animal and human attacks, and missing person reports were stacking up. Beneath Raccoon City, in the Umbrella Nest facility, research into the G-Virus continued under the direction of William Birkin and his wife, Annette. But the intrigue and fear of what was going on outside Raccoon City limits required a measured response. Umbrella and the chief of police couldn't just cover it up or pretend that it wasn't happening. It was just becoming too public. So, X-Day was plotted and schemed. Samples of the valuable T-virus assets would be retrieved and evacuated from the Arklay Laboratory, and the facilities would self-destruct to ensure that all evidence and life forms in the area were wiped out. Albert Wesker would be the central figure in executing this plan, and as the order came down for preparations to be made, Wesker began to scheme his own cruel ideas. A STARS group was sent in, the Bravo team, but they were doomed from the start. The head of STARS and supposed Umbrella stooge Albert Wesker sabotaged their helicopter, causing it to crash in the Arklay Mountains. On the ground, the Bravo team found the wreckage of a military vehicle that was transporting a supposed criminal named Billy Cohen. Billy was the fall man for a U.S. military operation in Africa that resulted in the execution of 23 locals in a tiny remote African village. Once the murder of the locals was leaked to the press, Billy Cohen was set up as the perpetrator. In actuality, Billy Cohen was there but resisted the order which came down from his immediate superior. The slaughter of the locals was some sick consolation prize for the outfit, kills to justify their journey and the loss of most of their group during it. The U.S. military's involvement in the area was highly criticized internationally as it was, and this group didn't want to just go back empty-handed. Billy's resistance made him the perfect fall man. The bodies of military personnel were in the wrecked van, but not Billy Cohen himself, raising suspicions that he was responsible for their murders and putting an additional objective onto the list of the Star's Bravo team, find this Billy Cohen and take him into custody. Not far off, one of the Bravo team, a young woman named Rebecca Chambers, finds a train, completely stopped on the tracks. The Ecliptic Express, an Umbrella Corporation-owned transport, en route to the closed-down Umbrella Executive Training School to investigate, perhaps reopening it. But now, on board, are the corpses of Umbrella personnel and shambling victims of the T-Virus. 
In another move against Umbrella, the new James Marcus attacked the train with his infectious leeches. All were killed or infected, and the Bravo team is at risk for the same happening to them. But Billy Cohen is here as well. And at least for now, the Bravo team member Rebecca Chambers and Billy Cohen will work together just to make it through this ordeal. The Bravo team is slowly torn apart one by one, leaving Rebecca and Billy to fight for survival together. Albert Wesker, once again in the company of his old chum, William Birkin, dispatches another STARS unit to the Ecliptic Express, the Delta Team, and keeps close tabs on their progress. The Delta Team gets the train moving once again towards the Umbrella Executive Training School and scout the train for Wesker, relaying information as they go. Wesker and Birkin have no intention of letting the Delta Team survive the train ride. No witnesses. No one makes it out. Wesker remotely increases the speed of the train, ensuring that it will either derail or crash at the Umbrella Training Facility. And to make matters worse, the leeches of James Marcus consume the Delta Team before Rebecca Chambers can make contact with them. The train is slowed enough to make the crash into the training facility survivable. The Bravo team leader, Enrico Marini, managed to make it here on his own, and he points Rebecca towards the direction of Oswell Spencer's Arclay Mansion. The two umbrella facilities are connected via an underground tunnel for discreet transport. Enrico begrudgingly leaves her here at the training facility to track down the MIA Billy Cohen and moves on himself to continue investigating what has been happening in these mountains. The ghouls and ghosties and long-legged beasties that go bump in the night at the Arclay Mountain Range are playthings compared to the brute that Rebecca meets in the facility. It is designated T-001, the Proto-Tyrant, the first of its kind, an empowered bio-organic weapon. It's lumbering, violent, and stupid uncontrollable, a failure, and now a health hazard. The best option in handling the proto-tyrant is truly to flee. Reunited and deep within the training facility, Billy Cohen and Rebecca Chambers make contact with the Queen Leech clone of James Marcus, who is truly all too happy to monologue his plans for revenge and domination, and to take the sickly form of a monstrous weapon to kill the two. Billy and Rebecca manage to destroy the Queen Leech of James Marcus and make it out of the training facility before Wesker detonates the self-destruct, taking with it all clues and evidence of what took place here and killing the proto-tyrant. Rebecca chooses to believe in Billy Cohen's innocence and decides to release him and officially report him as deceased in her mission. She will continue to the mansion of Oswell E. Spencer alone to search out survivors of any remaining STARS teams. With Albert Wesker now in the lead, another STARS team was assembled, the Alpha Team. They would travel through the mountains via the air, search out the missing Bravo team, and investigate their findings. This absolutely could not be allowed, of course. So the final stage of the contingency plan called X-Day began. X-Day was an order to scrub the Arclay Mountains of incriminating evidence in regards to what was taking place there. And what had happened at the Umbrella Executive Training Facility the night before was absolutely proof that the main Arclay Mansion needed to be destroyed. Samples were to be collected of the T-Virus and the mansion's self-destruct sequence activated, eliminating all STARS members, Umbrella staff on site, and bioorganic weapons loose on the grounds. And though the loss of this facility would be unfortunate for Umbrella, there was a silver lining. They would be able to obtain combat data on how trained soldiers fared against their current bioorganic weapons. So, some good could be salvaged from all of this. Good for Umbrella. 
I mean, extremely unfortunate for the STARS members, though. Before the Alpha team disembarked for their mission, William Birkin injected Albert Wesker with a version of the T-Virus that would give him greater chances at survival. Should something happen to Wesker that could end his life, the T-Virus might be enough to strengthen and heal him so that he could make it through the mission. Wesker also threatened a member of the STARS Alpha team named Barry Burton, specifically his family. He commanded Barry to assist him in getting rid of evidence in the mansion, or he would see that his entire family was killed. Barry felt that he had no option but to agree. And just like the Bravo team, things went to hell for the Alpha team almost as soon as they were on the ground. One of their team was attacked and consumed by infected hounds, sending the team fleeing into the Arclay mansion. Now, this place was designed by George Trevor to be full of puzzles and traps, perhaps not meant to be used as lethally as they eventually were, but this isn't a place where the STARS members can just frolic about. And now, it's also occupied by infected umbrella personnel that are just jonesing for some human rump roast. Jill Valentine, Chris Redfield, Barry Burton, and the Bravo team survivors, Rebecca Chambers and Enrico Marini, will have to push their way through the mansion just to discover what on earth took place here and then find a way out. Not knowing that their own leader, Albert Wesker, has no intention of letting any of that happen, at least not if he can interfere. Most of what took place here comes from the point of view of one Jill Valentine. The STARS soldier was able to solve the mysteries of the mansion with minor interventions from the blackmailed Barry Burton, who truly did not wish harm upon Miss Valentine, but did eventually take actions that put her at risk. He had to impede her progress and destroy evidence alongside Albert Wesker. The Bravo team leader, Enrico Marini, discovered that someone within STARS was a turncoat, a traitor working for Umbrella. But before he could tell Jill Valentine all he knew of the situation, Albert Wesker murdered him. Ms. Valentine even found the adult Lisa Trevor, the first of the Umbrella experiments and host of the G-Virus. And while not able to defeat the poor Lisa Trevor, the STARS team was at least able to remove her from their path forward. Over the course of the night, glimpses of the truth as to what Umbrella has done here were made known. Enough information that it could absolutely ruin the corporation. The heart of the mansion, the underground labs, held the most frightening of secrets, another tyrant, the T-002. Unlike the T-001 at the training facility that Rebecca and Billy encountered, this tyrant is moderately intelligent, a far more dangerous bioorganic weapon than its predecessor. Albert Wesker has already taken samples. Everything has worked out in his favor thus far. The last task is to see the mansion completely wiped out. But Jill Valentine and Barry Burton stand as obstacles. So, Wesker releases the T-002, expecting the bioorganic weapon to attack the STARS members, but it is not so inclined to be picky about its target. Wesker should be thankful for his T-virus injection from William Birkin. The T-002 handles Wesker first in apparent lethal strike, and then it turns its attention upon Barry, and more specifically, Jill Valentine. During the first fray with the tyrant, Wesker recovered enough to slip away from the fight unnoticed. The healing properties of the T-Virus truly did save his life, and while Jill and Barry fumbled their way through the underground lab trying to find Chris Redfield and a way out, Wesker activates the self-destruct of the building. This does unlock their way out, but time just became an extremely limiting factor. They could just leave Chris Redfield behind, but he might be important to the story later, so probably best to save him, right? The trio finally make it topside to an area that their helicopter pilot can receive them. 
the T-002, rears his ugly head and naked booty once more before the STARS team can be lifted out, intent on killing everything that it comes across. It takes a direct hit from a rocket launcher to stop the weapon, at least long enough for the STARS team to evacuate. That horrible mansion and everything still within is destroyed. All personnel, infected or not, Lisa Trevor, the tyrant, data and records, samples, all of it gone. The survivors of this night, Jill Valentine, Barry Burton, Rebecca Chambers, Chris Redfield, and Brad Vickers will rarely know a moment of peace in whatever remains of their lives. They were not intended to make it through this night, and their continued existence is a complication to Umbrella's cover-up. After the mansion incident, within a few days actually, at the end of the month of July, another T-virus infection event got underway beneath Raccoon City in the Umbrella facility called The Nest, which was headed by the once friend of Albert Wesker, William Birkin. You see, for a while, William Birkin had been making some odd choices in regards to the safety measures of his research. On-site staff were given antivirals to protect them from the T-virus, but Birkin began performing his experiments at such a rate that the waste processing plant near the nest couldn't keep up with the demand. It was a special process to completely get rid of the infected bodies. The T-virus began to mutate within the corpses, making the antivirals useless and then staff began to show signs of slow onset infection. And while this wasn't an immediate outbreak, it turned Raccoon City into an outbreak time bomb. After his betrayal, Albert Wesker began working with a group simply called The Organization. While not an employee per se, but rather an associate of the mysterious group, their intel and resources would provide Wesker with everything he needed to track down locations of various progenitor virus experiments taking place around the world. His T-virus infection would make him more than human, yes, but it wasn't the apparent godhood that he so craved. He didn't have the right formula that would pave the way for a true human evolutionary event. As time went on, the T-virus would become more difficult for his body to adapt to, more unstable. He would eventually require booster shots to keep it under control, to keep him from turning into something monstrous. In August of 1998, the STARS team was completely disbanded by police chief Brian Irons, that stooge for Umbrella. Brian Irons was under immense pressure from William Birkin to cover up the sporadic infections happening due to water and soil contamination from the overrunning waste processing plant. And Umbrella was breathing down his neck to cover up any investigations into what happened in the Arklay Mountains. No one believed the claims of Jill, Chris, and Barry about what happened there, but even with the STARS disbanded, the team did not give up on their search for answers. Chris Redfield departed for Europe to explore leads into Umbrella facilities there. Barry Burton got his family moved to Canada so that he could pursue leads without fearing for their safety. And Jill Valentine remained in Raccoon City to investigate Umbrella and rumors of a facility beneath the city. Speaking of which, like we discussed before, studies into the G-Virus continued beneath the city in The Nest, overseen by William Birkin and his wife, Annette. In the aftermath of the mansion incident, William made strides in his research with the G-Virus, nearly finalizing his work, and made an interesting choice regarding his research. He decided that rather than turn the G-Virus over to Umbrella, he would instead sell it to the US military. And the US military was all too willing to accept his offer. Umbrella had for years received funding from the US military on their bioweapons projects. They knew what Umbrella was developing, they knew it violated international law regarding the development of biological weapons. Birkin's decision to do this was surprising. 
given how many employees had been killed on the job at Umbrella and how well the corporation was connected to, well, everything. But I guess having a PhD and a fancy lab coat doesn't mean you have common sense, does it? Into the month of September, T-virus infections continued to occur within Raccoon City. Hospitals and clinics were at capacity or had to turn sick people away. This slow-moving version of the mutated T-virus provided days and weeks for terror and uncertainty to build within the city before reports of attacks, murders, and cannibalism began to surface. On September 22nd of 1998, William Birkin's scheme was sniffed out. Of course, Umbrella had connections within the military that would snitch on a traitor. Stupid of Birkin to think that this wouldn't happen. The Umbrella Security Service was sent into the nest, tasked with taking Birkin in alive and taking control of his G-Virus. Birkin put samples of the T and G-Virus into a case and made his move to leave the nest, only to be confronted by the Umbrella Security Service. Birkin was gunned down and the samples retrieved but the USS team didn't search him before departing or ensure that he was actually dead. William Birkin kept a dose of the G-Virus on himself as a backup plan should things go wrong. Enraged by his plan being ruined and that he was cast aside, William Birkin injected himself with the G-Virus. To the absolute horror of his wife, Annette, William Birkin's change was rapid. He became a towering, nigh-unstoppable, infected monstrosity, and he chased down the USS team. In the mayhem of his attack, the case holding the virus sample opened, and a vial of pure T-virus spilled out. A couple little rats started slurping up that sweet virus juice. I bet it tasted like cherry. And can you guess what happened next? Or I suppose the better question would be, can you guess how long it took? The infection spread amongst the rats in the city, causing them to mutate and bloat and spread it rapidly in their nests. The rat waste and corpses got into the Raccoon City water supply, and within five days, Raccoon City fell into complete, all-consuming infection. Jill Valentine was haunted by nightmares of the T-Virus. She coped as best as she could with the memories of Arclay Mansion, threw herself into her investigation and her research. She was a woman of iron who refused to give up. And when sickness began to fall upon the city, she didn't flee. She continued her search. There's no way that Jill could have known what was coming for her. How could she? How could anyone know? that Umbrella dropped multiple Tyrant 103 series bioweapons in the city. This is the Nemesis Tyrant, a highly aggressive T-103 with a Nemesis Alpha parasite embedded into it. Its sole mission is to hunt and kill any former STARS members still within the city to ensure that they do not make it out alive. And the only two in the city are Jill Valentine and the pilot Brad Vickers, Brad doesn't make it very far. He's infected during their escape attempt, leaving Jill Valentine the only target of this bioweapon. Thankfully, while able to follow orders and comprehend commands, the nemesis is not exquisitely intelligent, and Jill is able to give it the slip. This is the only option that she has now, run. It cannot be killed, and the city is falling so fast that if nemesis doesn't claim her, then the zombie hordes will. Deeper into the city, Jill meets with the Umbrella Biohazard Countermeasure Service, or the UBCS. The UBCS was deployed as four full platoons. They were meant to help contain and stop the spread of the virus. 
but no one really knew just how quickly the spread would happen. And the contamination of Raccoon City's water wasn't known to the authorities, leading to infection within the UBCS groups as well. The UBCS went from four full platoons to just four men in less than two days in Raccoon City. There are survivors on the subway, and it's a way out of the situation. It just needs power and repairs, a process that Jill Valentine will aid them in. But things around here will only go from bad to worse. While these men are not its targets, the nemesis will absolutely tear them apart to reach Jill Valentine. To flee the area, the UBCS soldiers need time to get the subway system going again, so Jill will act as bait to lure the nemesis away from the UBCS soldiers so that they can prepare the subway. Looping about and returning here is her ultimate goal, which takes her through a disgusting, infested sewer, all the way up to the surface of a construction zone where the nemesis itself intercepts her for a grand chase up a building into a spectacle of flame and violence at the rooftop. All of this is just a measure to just stop the nemesis for a moment to buy enough time to get the hell away from it. And you might be expected that something that grand would be overkill, a massive explosion that took out a rooftop. But no, no, not by a long shot. These weapons are nigh unkillable, extremely destructive forces. And after all these decades of research and experimentation, Umbrella has cracked some sort of code with the tyrants. Get used to it. That's what's going on in the city right now. This is the gift that Umbrella will give to the world. The pursuit will continue all across this district of Raccoon City. The entirety of this has just been giving the UBCS a fighting chance to get the damn subway system active. Which, thank god, they actually got it done in time. Two of its members, Carlos and Tyrell, have new orders to track down the vaccine research of a man named Nathaniel Bard, which will first take them to the Raccoon City Police Department to search out leads. But the subway's departure was just a little bit too late. The nemesis is here. It attacks the subway, something most fortuitous for one of the UBCS members, Nikolai Zinoviev, a two-faced jackal who's working alongside Umbrella and one of its unnamed competitors to make as much money off the situation as possible. He locks his commander and Jill Valentine out of a retreat to be torn apart by the nemesis. The captain of this platoon, an older man named Mikhail Victor, is having none of this, though. In the grips of the nemesis, the man detonates enough C4 to knock the nemesis off the train, cause a huge wreck, and give Jill Valentine enough time to put space between herself and the encroaching beast. UBCS members Carlos and Tyrell were moderately successful in tracking down information on Nathaniel Bard and his vaccine research in the Raccoon City Police Department. But upon hearing of the train's derailment from Jill Valentine, the man named Carlos departs from Tyrell to assist her within the city. Very noble, except Carlos won't be able to help Jill in time, at least not with this. The nemesis is evolving over the night to become what it needs in order to complete its mission. It's almost completely lost all human semblance and is a rampaging beast in this new arena. While Jill is able to deliver it grievous harm, there's no shielding from what the nemesis can do now. It infects Jill with a strain of the T-virus. While the infection is immediate, the effects are delayed. She won't change immediately, but Jill is extremely ill, and it's only a matter of time before she too becomes a shambling horror. The UBCS soldier Carlos 
finds her and takes her to the Spencer Memorial Hospital, where the man Nathaniel Bard was working in an umbrella-funded lab to create an antivirus treatment and a vaccine. There is one single dose available, which Bard was trying to use as a ticket out of the city once the T-virus was loose. Seems there's a number of U.S. senators that were well aware of what was taking place in the city, and I wonder if there will be any consequences for them. Oh. Sorry, it's funny, isn't it? Sorry, Carlos is able to track down the dose and discover the truth of what Umbrella had done in the city, and their intention to cover their tracks, destroy the city and the cure along with it. He delivers this single cure to Jill Valentine, and remarkably, it is the real deal. An emergency broadcast begins to play all around Raccoon City. A notice that on October 1st, in about three days time, the city will be bombed into oblivion. All people still capable have until then to evacuate the city. Carlos and Tyrell will stand guard over the area, search for more of the vaccine, try to stall for time with the U.S. military, and wait for Jill to awaken so that she might leave the city with them. Meanwhile, not so far away on that same night of September 29th, a rookie cop named Leon Kennedy is en route to Raccoon City anxiously anticipating his first day as a cop with the RCPD. Though he was told to stay away from the city, the young man has taken the initiative to not do that. Beyond the city limits, the naive young man encounters the T-virus infection at a gas station. It's already traveling beyond the city center, and blockades haven't yet been set up to handle the situation. Here he finds another of the Redfield family, Claire, the younger sister of Chris Redfield. Claire is searching for her brother, Chris. With certain trouble awaiting them in the city, the two decide to travel the final stretch of road together to search out the Raccoon City Police Department for help. But do you feel that? The city, it's, it's so quiet, something is quite amiss. It's very apparent that something terrible has happened here. The roads are empty save abandoned vehicles, and the radio is broadcasting a troubling message to residents on where to seek shelter from the mayhem. But for Leon and Claire, this is really just the quiet before the storm. The T-virus has spread like wildfire, and thanks to the manic driving of a dying trucker, there are no longer any viable escape routes for Leon and Claire, who are separated during the chaos. The bulk of this tale will be relayed through the experiences of our young Leon Kennedy, who successfully makes his way to the RCPD, only to find the building menacingly quiet. This is where survivors were supposed to gather, where the police force made its stand, but it's so quiet. Leon's path forward comes from the notes of Elliot Edward, an officer killed in the police station during the outbreak, and an infected officer named Marvin, who will selflessly do everything he can before he dies to get the young Leon through the police station to an exit beyond the parking garage. The police station wings are inhabited by infected civilians and officers who couldn't stave off the virus. The whole thing is a tragic mess of terrible circumstances. It takes a few hours, but Leon is eventually able to make his way through the station and open up the passage that will lead him through the parking garage. But beneath the building, Leon meets a G-virus infected William Birkin who is still actively undergoing G-virus evolutions. Birkin being out of the nest and so close to the surface is bad, bad news. Though Leon could have no way of knowing the implications of a G-virus weapon running amok on the surface. 
Leon is barely able to send him back to a lower level, leave the underground, and reach the parking garage where he meets one Ms. Ada Wong. Ada Wong is a contracted mercenary of sorts, currently working alongside Albert Wesker and the mysterious organization that has a vested interest in Umbrella's research. Ada Wong is a mystery, but she'll do anything and everything to complete her missions, even if it involves using and manipulating poor, naive souls like Leon Kennedy. Ada Wong tells Leon that she's with the FBI, and he buys it, then just sorta tells him to buzz off, for now. In the jail section, attached to the lockdown garage, a journalist is being held, Ben Bertolucci. Ben was investigating the Arklay Mountain murders, the Birkins, and Umbrella, which led him to the police chief. And when Brian Irons found out that Ben was investigating him, he had him arrested and locked up. His imprisonment actually helped keep him safe from the outbreak. Ben promises Leon that if he can get his prison door open, he'll help him get out of the lockdown parking garage. He has a key. Leon doesn't. They need each other. But before the two can even reach an agreement, well, well, well. Remember earlier in the outbreak how Umbrella deployed multiple Tyrant 103 series bioweapons into the city? We met Nemesis, and now another lurks nearby. To get the cell door open and to get the damned parking garage pass takes our Leon back into the police department to get the power back on. But while traipsing about this seeming labyrinth of a building, Leon meets his own Tyrant buddy. The T-00. Community codename, Mr. Fedora. The T-00 is a far more mm, deliberate and calm counterpart to the Nemesis Tyrant, but equally as lethal. It's here to retrieve a G-Virus sample and eliminate all survivors it encounters in the process. William Birkin was recently beneath the station, and it just so happens that another sample is nearby. And if this is known to Umbrella, then the police station is the perfect place to begin searching for a sample. Leon completes his garage keycard retrieval process, with the T-00 bearing down on him the whole time, hunting him through the station. Ada Wong is able to temporarily stop the tyrant with a van and a small bomb, but as we know, such measures are short-lived successes. With this small victory, Ada Wong and Leon Kennedy depart the station and agree to work together. Or rather, Ada Wong seamlessly manipulates Leon Kennedy into providing her assistance. They trek across the quiet back streets together towards an entrance into the nest. Not too far behind is Claire Redfield. She too has made it through the police station into the underground. And there she finds a little Sherry Birkin, the daughter of William and Annette Birkin, and this girl has been terrorized by the night, unable to find her parents, and her father is nearby. Claire gets her turn at combating the infected Birkin and takes custody of little Sherry once the coast is clear. Unfortunately, police chief Brian Irons is in the vacant parking garage. Once he was made aware of the T-virus being loose in the city, the police chief completely lost touch with reality. He became violent, and his orders became nonsensical. You see, little Sherry has a special locket that her mother gave her on her birthday, and hidden within that locket is a sample of the G-Virus. Brian Irons wants that locket to guarantee his way out of the city with Umbrella. In his struggle with little Sherry, the pendant fell from her neck, and when Brian Irons realized this, 
He demanded that Claire Redfield bring it to him at the Raccoon City Orphanage. What she finds upon arrival is that Papa William Birkin found a way into the orphanage and infected the rotten police chief with the G-Virus. Sherry and Claire are able to reunite underground, beneath the orphanage where even more nest tunnels lie. But the T-00 is now in pursuit of the G-Virus sample that little Sherry possesses. It's pure, weird fortune that William Birkin, in all his rage and mindlessness, targets the T-00, ripping an entire section out of it and stopping it for now. But all parties are sent down into the sewers directly connected to the nest, and troubles will compound for Claire and Sherry as Birkin infected his daughter with the G-Virus. Annette Birkin comes into contact with her daughter but refuses to stop her work to aid the little girl. The lives of millions are at stake, and her husband is still loose. Her lab is nearby, Claire can take her there, but that's all that she can do for her daughter. Annette sorrowfully bids Sherry goodbye and moves on with her work. In Annette's lab, Claire finds messages pertaining to an antiviral that can cure the girl. In her mother's stead, Claire pushes through the nest to find what is needed to save Sherry's life and to solve the mysteries of what happened in this place. Leon and Ada Wong also encounter the distraught Annette Birkin. But as soon as Ada Wong says that she is there for the G-Virus, Annette knows exactly what she is implying. She sees through Ada Wong's words and recognizes her intentions. Ada is there to take the G-Virus out of the nest with her, to deliver it to the hands of God knows who, and Annette refuses to allow that to happen. It all has to be destroyed. This process has to be stopped. Ada leaves Leon in the tunnels to apparently sleep through a gunshot wound that he took during Annette Birkin's escape. But don't you worry. She left him her jacket to keep him warm and to heal him. Ada pursues the doctor, but Annette is really not messing around when it comes to one human life versus stopping this virus. She puts a harsh stop to Ada Wong's pursuit, and she's lucky that's all she did. When Leon awakens from his magical healing nap and tracks Ada down in a pile of trash, she manages to manipulate the young man into completing the mission for her. Oh, that sweet, poor, naive boy. That's the power of a smooch. Alone and now in the heart of the nest, Leon finally does piece together what is going on here and how dangerous these viruses are. And when the two finally meet, Annette herself tells him what happened to her husband and the intentions of this Ada Wong character, how nothing of this lab can be allowed to escape. With Annette, it's not about a cover-up. It's about stopping the viruses here. William Birkin has become a monstrosity on par with the tyrants hunting through the city and deals a serious crushing wound to Annette as soon as it's within reach. Leon and Birkin fight it out in the nest in a grand, wild, over-the-top fight befitting something as monstrous and foreboding as the G-Virus, but in the end, it is Leon who wins, at least for now. These things don't really die that easily, do they? Blow one up on a roof, tear it in half, toss it down an endless pit, read it insults, nothing really keeps them down for long. Annette begs Leon to not give Ada Wong that G-Virus sample, to just let everything burn down here in the self-destruct that's about to begin. At the exit, Leon plays a very foolish game of trust with Ada, believing that for some reason she won't shoot him, that she'd actually let him take her to the authorities, that people will do the right thing when given the chance. Oh, sweet young man. Jeez. Annette Birkin 
puts a stop to their parlay, shooting Ada Wong before she herself finally succumbs to her wounds. The G-Virus sample is lost down the length of the collapsing nest facility, and Ada Wong forces Leon to release her, allowing her to fall. Would seem a selfless sacrifice so that he can save time in pulling her up and get to safety, but we'll come to know later that Ada Wong has tools to make long descents a bit more safe. She's going after that sample. She's not helping Leon Kennedy, but he doesn't need to know that. Ten minutes begin to count down. En route to the shuttle that will get him away from the nest, he gets back in contact with Claire Redfield who has found a way to save the life of little Sherry Birkin, and is also searching for a way out of the nest. Best of luck to both of them, as Leon has other things to worry about right now on his escape, namely Mr. Fedora. The T-00 is back, and with a lovely surprise for Mr. Kennedy, its own little evolution. The calm approach of the T-00 is over. It's enraged, empowered, and has Leon trapped on a descending platform. It's not a matter of killing it, but surviving the descent. That is until an intervention happens. The one Ms. Ada Wong does Leon a solid favor and delivers an anti-tank rocket launcher onto the platform. It takes a direct, close-range hit for the weapon to stop the T-00. Oh, goodbye, Mr. Fedora. Your fashion was truly on point, you absolute creepy icon. Leon makes his escape aboard the fleeing shuttle leaving the nest, which thankfully Claire and little Sherry Birkin are safely aboard. For now, their stories have concluded, but the events taking place in Raccoon City are not over yet. It was before dawn of September 30th when Claire, Leon, and Sherry fled Raccoon City. But just past midnight on October 1st, Jill Valentine awoke, still in Raccoon City at the hospital with Tyrell and Carlos, now aware that Raccoon City's destruction is just hours away. Tyrell has been trying to get someone on the phone with the power to delay the missile strike, but to no avail. Carlos is still in the bowels of the hospital trying to locate where Nathaniel Bard kept a vaccine stockpile. The underground of the hospital is an expansive warehouse-like area. It's amazing that it was kept so secret. And it's not the friendly face of Carlos that Jill finds, but rather the smirking traitor Nikolai Zinoviev. After Jill's infection, he took samples of her blood and found it interesting that she hadn't turned into something monstrous several hours after the event. And here, a few days after it happened, she seems just fine. But his appearance here is just to be creepy, apparently. He hightails it before Jill reaches the weirdo room, followed shortly by Tyrell. He relays that the government will consider halting the airstrike only if they can get the vaccine to them before the scheduled bombing. Beneath, the Spencer Memorial Hospital is revealed to be another umbrella facility, the Nest 2. While the Birkins studied the G-Virus and experimented with the T-Virus, primarily at the first Nest, Nest 2 is a bit smaller and used for bioorganic weapon information accumulation, or more specifically, how the BOWs fare in combat. A fair bit of study also went into cures for and preventions against the umbrella viruses, and the facility is far from empty. Even here, they are not safe from the nemesis. It has had over two days to recover and to track Jill. Tyrell is lost in the struggle, but Jill is once again able to flee from the tyrant into the Nest 2, which is full of various tyrant models and T-virus experiments. 
The employees here were also consumed by the madness of the infection event. Their bodies litter the hallways along the shambling amalgamations that Umbrella created in experimentation. But here also are the notes of one Dr. Nathaniel Bard, the man who poured so much into research for a vaccine against the T-virus. With his notes and reagents about the Nest 2, a vaccine is able to be produced, something to deliver to the U.S. military that should halt the missile strike, perhaps even save Raccoon City and those still within. But with this victory comes the remembrance that a certain beast is still searching for Jill, and something like a door, stairwell, or a wall will not hold it back. The nemesis tyrant must be addressed before leaving the city, as must the traitor Nikolai Zinoviev ever the opportunist. With the vaccine in hand, he offers a deal to Jill. Battle the nemesis so that he can obtain battle data on it, and maybe he won't need the actual vaccine to get paid. Good luck, have fun. It takes repeated direct gunshots, multiple grenades, a large series of fires, zoomies, one Mr. Carlos, and then an arena flooded with corrosive chemical to finally stop it. Do you suppose turning it into a puddle was actually enough to kill it? Oh, bye-bye, Mr. Trashbag Man. You weren't quite as cool as Mr. Fedora, but you were all right. Do you suppose Nikolai is going to keep up his end of the bargain? Well, yeah, I, I didn't either. Of course, he won't actually hand over the vaccine. He would like more combat data that Jill can create against the Umbrella bioweapons. And look at who it is. Oh, he survived after all. I was wrong. Good for him. He is just looking great. The nemesis has changed yet again and it will take an over-the-top and wild solution to bring this obscene amalgamation down. Seems Umbrella had some backup weaponry in case there was a loose tyrant. For as heavy metal as a point-blank shot to the face with a cannon is, one still kinda has to wonder, did that really get the job done? But perhaps it doesn't matter. The missile strike is imminent, no vaccine has been delivered yet, and the focus must be tracking down Nikolai Zinoviev to retrieve it and then get out of the city. Nikolai himself proves to be a mild obstacle, a soldier who has used circumstances and surprise to his advantage when others were vulnerable. He destroys the vaccine, not thinking through the consequences of it because his unnamed employer wants Umbrella torn to the ground. The vaccine can rot for all he cares. And with him shooting that vaccine, well, there goes Jill and Carlos's bargaining chip for stopping the missile strike. The two overpower the man, not surprising, given what they just did to the nemesis. And then the bargaining begins. But Nikolai's promise of selling out his employer and giving them money for passage out of the city is not going to be enough to save him from the hole that he has dug himself into. Nikolai Zinoviev will remain on this rooftop as Jill and Carlos leave the city to deal with the consequences of his actions. Those consequences being hellfire and destruction. Good luck, have fun, Nikolai. Bye. The lives lost in the city and the destructive measures required to contain the outbreak cannot be covered up by Umbrella. Not even they are that powerful. While investigations began into Raccoon City, a process that would take time, the corporation continued to push research into their viruses and parasites in secret. After Raccoon City, Claire Redfield departed from the company of Leon Kennedy and Little Sherry Birkin. After the city was destroyed, the military found and took custody of Leon and Sherry. Leon was interrogated for his insight on what took place in the city, and then recruited into the United States Strategic Command, or STRATCOM. There, Leon would receive training and become a special agent employed by the U.S. government in the years to come. 
Claire Redfield, however, continued to search for her brother Chris. This took her to an umbrella facility near Paris, where she was captured and then imprisoned at Rockford Island, a prison complex owned by the Ashford family, and used by Umbrella to contain enemies of the company. During her imprisonment there, soldiers under the order of Albert Wesker infiltrated the island to gain information on the Ashford family, specifically anything pertaining to the studies of the T. Veronica virus that Alexia Ashford developed. Wesker's team caused another T-virus outbreak on the island, thankfully contained and unable to spread, but still devastating to those abandoned on Rockford Island. With the kind of help of a young man named Steve Burnside, Claire discovers the existence of the Antarctica facility, as does Albert Wesker. Wesker has been on a hell-blazing mission to gather the many secrets of Umbrella's virus research for his own self-serving purposes. Before Claire and Steve depart for Antarctica, she contacts Leon Kennedy, who in turn reaches out to her brother Chris so that he might assist her in this extremely dangerous mission. At the Arctic facility, a severely injured Alfred reawakens his slumbering sister Alexia, who has been in stasis for 15 years and is now fully in control of her infection, the T. Veronica virus. In the end, Steve Burnside is infected with the T. Veronica virus and killed. The Redfield siblings are reunited finally. Alexia Ashford herself is killed by Chris and Claire, and Albert Wesker is able to extract a sample of the T. Veronica virus from Steve's corpse. The Antarctic facility's self-destruct was activated by Chris Redfield, and the horror of that place was left to rot alongside the last of the Ashford family line. In the following years, Claire would keep in frequent contact with the young Sherry Birkin as the girl settled into a new protected life. Claire began to work with an agency called TerraSave to help people impacted by bioterrorism. Chris Redfield tracked down Jill Valentine and the two continued their investigations into Umbrella's global facilities, though time after time they found themselves at dead ends. A justice of sorts finally came for Umbrella in the year 2004, a full six years after the destruction of Raccoon City. Several companies had unwittingly aided Umbrella in their projects by acting as trade partners, and every one of them churned on Umbrella as soon as the Raccoon City trials began to protect themselves. It took the combined efforts of these self-serving companies, the testimony of countless witnesses, and the discovery of secret Umbrella documents to bring the company down via bankruptcy. The lawyers of Umbrella were actually almost able to refute the prosecution's claims based on a lack of evidence. But in 2004, Umbrella was found to be responsible for Raccoon City and guilty of violating international bioterrorism laws. The US government and the military were not held responsible in any way for their own involvement in Umbrella's affairs. Knowledge of military funding into their projects was withheld. The company was liquidated, compensation was paid out to the victims of their work, and a manhunt for Oswell E. Spencer began. But this is far, far from the end. Remember, there were rivals to Umbrella that sought their downfall, that benefited greatly from its demise. Albert Wesker and the mysterious organization he was integrated into had in their possession the T-Virus, the G-Virus, and the T-Veronica virus. Dealings with terrorist organizations interested in purchasing the bioweapons was already underway. In 2004, Albert Wesker began working with a geneticist named Excella Gione. Giving her samples and information related to the T-virus, Excella was able to integrate the T-virus into Tricell's bioweapons division. 
propelling her into a position of power within the company and a puppet of Albert Wesker. Excella Gianni would become the CEO of Tricell Africa, where the progenitor virus source lay. The mysterious organization was integrated into Tricell, where studies of the progenitor virus and the T-virus would lead to new and horrific tools of bioterrorism under the banner of Tricell. But before that new horror is revealed to the world, in the year 2004, a kidnapping would take place. The president's daughter and deployed to save the day would be the now veteran STRATCOM agent, Leon Kennedy.